The Afterwards Podcast is taking a break this week, so instead, we are bringing you an episode of our popular Book Notes Plus podcast. In this episode, Matthew Delmont discusses his book, Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. He is interviewed by C-SPAN's Brian Lamb. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The title of Dartmouth history professor Matthew Delmont's latest book is Half American. Subtitle, The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. Professor Delmont writes in his introduction that, quote, nearly everything about the war, the start and the end dates, geography, vital military roles, home front and international implications, looks different when viewed from the African-American perspective, unquote. Professor Belmont points out, ultimately, over one million black men and women served in World War II. Professor Matthew Delmont, in a couple of years, if the schedule is kept, there will be a huge nuclear aircraft carrier called the Doris Miller. What is the symbolism of that? It's incredibly significant. Uh, Doris Miller was a mess attendant on the USS West Virginia who performed heroically during the Battle of Pearl Harbor. Like other black Americans, he was only allowed to serve in the Navy as a mess attendant, where his role was to, to serve and to feed white officers. So he's not in a combat role. But once the bombing of Pearl Harbor began, he uh, did everything he was asked to do by his commanders. He made a, a makeshift stretcher to help move uh, wounded soldiers, wounded sailors on the USS West Virginia. Then he came above, above board on decks uh, and manned one of the anti-aircraft guns on the, the deck of the West Virginia and started shooting at Japanese planes, potentially hitting one of them. Then once he got into the water, he helped uh, crewmates swim to shore, um, helping to save a number of, a number of his, his fellow sailors on the USS West Virginia. It was important at the time because um, the Navy had really disparaged the service of black Americans during... Uh, the lead up to World War II. And so um, his performance at the Battle of Pearl Harbor was um, extraordinary and it w- received uh, huge amounts of attention both within the black press and the, the wider mainstream press as well. What do you think led to the Navy deciding to, I mean, he did have another ship named after him, but it's been out of commission for years. But what do you think led to, aircraft carriers are normally named after presidents. I mean, I would hope on the Navy's part it's a recognition that there are aspects of the history of the Navy that need to be brought to the foreground, that part of the importance of a, a branch like the Navy is that it requires the service and contributions of, of everyone, regardless of rank. And I think Doris Miller is a great example of that. He's someone who did everything he was called on to do in, um, in the heat of battle. And it, I think it's also a recognition that the Navy and other branches of the military have uh, aspects of their history that involve explicit racial segregation and racial discrimination. And so uh, honoring Doris Miller in that way helps to reckon honestly with that history and hopefully helps to, to chart um, a better future course uh, for the military as, uh, as the armed forces has done for the last several decades. 
a service that's part of the Navy, the Marines, had a relationship with the African-American that I want you to explain. I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? Yeah, basically, what what was the Marines' attitude toward the African-American black uh, soldier uh, back in the days of World War II? So while the entire military was segregated during World War II, the Marine Corps was was even worse than the Army or Navy. Uh, at the start of the war, they didn't allow any black Americans to serve, um, which is a, a real affront to the citizenship and, and patriotism of black Americans. It was only after uh, protests in that first year of World War II that finally the Marine Corps relented and established a training base for black Marines at Monford Point in North Carolina. That first cohort of black Marines became uh, called the Monford Point Marines, and they distinguished themselves uh, in battle and particularly in the Pacific, uh, in the battles of Saipan and Iwo Jima. Um, and what they, is important about the story of the Marines in the context of World War II is they went from being the worst of the armed service branches in terms of their treatment of black Americans to, by the end, being more on the foreground because they recognized once these black Marines from Montford Point got into battle, they performed uh, tremendously well. And so the commandant of the Marines um, by 1944 said that these Montford Point Marines were 100% Marines. And that was a a meaningful moment because it recognized that these black men were going to be judged by their performance, not by the color of their skin. What changed the Marines' mind? Performance, pure and simple. Um, At the start of the the war, the commandant of the Marines at that that time point said he would have preferred a Marine Corps of 5,000 white Marines rather than 25,000 black Marines. And so there was nothing anyone could tell him that was going to get them to to desegregate. Once you finally get the Montfort Point Marines there, get them in in battle, what changed people's minds is their performance in combat, that they're there um, shoulder to shoulder with with white Marines, um, and they – the commanders are able to see that these Marines perform uh, as Marines. And I think more than anything, it's that combat performance that changes the Marine Corps' mind. I know you worked on this book for six or seven years. Uh, How did your mind change about this subject as you went along? For me, the research changed my mind in a couple ways. One, I don't think I fully appreciated how vast the contributions of black Americans were to the war effort, that more than a million black Americans served in the military during World War II, a million more served in defense industries at home. Um, of course, like everyone else is familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, familiar with Doris Miller, but the stories that really inspired me were the stories of the troops who were in the, the logistical roles and the supply roles. People like the truck drivers on the Red Ball Express who moved supplies across Europe after D-Day. Uh, people who did the, the kind of unsung labor, building roads, clearing jungles, loading and unloading ships. Part of the argument I make in the book is that World War II wasn't just a battle of strategy and will. It was a battle of supply. And that if we understand it from that perspective, it's really clear that black Americans played a vital role in helping to win the war. And so that was a, an argument I didn't know I was going to be making when I started the research. And so that was a, certainly influential for me. The second piece was understanding that for black Americans, the war didn't really end in 1945. That yes, there was a military victory that was achieved, but black Americans understood themselves to be fighting what they called the double victory campaign, uh, trying to get victory over fascism abroad, but also victory over racism at home. The military victories were complete in 1945, but that uh, campaign against segregation, against discrimination, against ra- racism at home, it continued after 1945. And so that whole generation of black veterans, they went from fighting in Europe in the, in the and the Pacific, and they came back to the United States and they kept fighting. They kept fighting for actual freedom and democracy here in the United States. I knew that story in its broad contours, but actually getting back into these primary sources, digging into what life was like for those black veterans when they returned in 1945, it was inspiring to see how they, they fought for their country 
abroad, but then also fought for America at home. They, they fought to make America a better place. For 35 years, and I'm old enough to remember him, there was a United States senator by the name of James Eastland from Mississippi who was quite high in the hierarchy near the end of his time in the Senate. And you, at the end, in the homecoming chapter, quote him. And I'm just going to read some of this. And then I'm going to play some of the a quote, some of the, the sound we have of him in an interview with Mike Wallace uh, in just a second. Anyway, he says the Negro race is an inferior race. I say, frankly, that I'm proud of the white race. I'm proud that the purest form of white blood flows in my veins. I know that the white race is the superior race. It has ruled the world. It has given us civilization. It is responsible for all the progress on earth. When you found that quote, what was your reaction? It's upsetting. Uh, I mean, I'm a historian. I, I work on the history of race and racism in the United States. But when you go back and read quotes like that, uh, it's deeply, deeply upsetting, particularly when you know that it's someone in a position of power. This isn't some lone crank writing from a, a shack in the woods somewhere. He, he's saying those words on the floor of the Senate. This is a person who is among the most powerful politicians in the entire United States because he has seniorities on a number of the key committees. It's also disturbing because he's directly attacking black veterans in the summer of 1945, as the country is celebrating the victory in, in World War II. And so for me, it was, it was and is, even hearing the words again this, this morning, it's deeply upsetting to, um, to hear that explicit form of, of racism uh, expressed in that way. Remember, he was first in the Senate for the long term in 1943. And here is his interview in the 60s with Mike Wallace, uh, and we got three cuts. We'll just run the first cut and get your reaction to what he says. Now, this doctrine of, sep of the separation of the races has been evolved over many years by both races. It's not something that one race has imposed upon another race. It's not a badge of inferiority or superiority. It's found throughout the years that you have more harmony and that the races can make more progress under a system of separate. Senator James Eastland, your reaction? I think what's so troubling and disturbing about that is um, it's, it's factually incorrect. Um, it elides the reality of what segregation looked like in the United States, that if you look at the context of World War II, separate was in no way equal. Black troops were assigned to the lowest, dirtiest jobs within the armed services. When they had these separate barracks, separate latrines, all of those facilities were, were second class. Uh, they were forced to ride in the back of buses, back of train cars. Um, the Red Cross even segregated blood donors because they thought there was some sort of difference between black and white blood, even though there's no scientific basis to do that. The entire system of segregation was built to, to disparage black Americans and to, to um, to funnel resources away from black communities and towards white communities. And so it's frustrating to, to hear that as a historian because I know that it's, it's incorrect. I think it's important, though, and I appreciate you playing it, because it's a, it's a powerful reminder that when we talk about racism and segregation in the United States, it's sometimes easy to think about those things in the abstract. But when you think about someone like James O. Eastland and how deeply he believed in this notion of, of white superiority and how he was able to help uh, implement policies that that shaped 
uh, our country and helped and shaped the the country that Black veterans came back to. Um, I think it's important that we we confront those primary sources uh, and those voices from the past head on, because without that, it's, it's really difficult to understand why segregation and racism remained in the United States after the end of World War II. Professor Delmont, here's the second clip. If a Negro maid or nurse is good enough to care for a white infant in the South, live with that infant, feed that infant, and so forth, why is not that same Negro maid allowed to eat in the same restaurant with Southern whites? I want to know the reason behind it. It's a matter of choice. Choice by the white. No, it's a matter of choice by both races. Are you suggesting... I have just told you that they that a Reconstruction legislature com- composed principally of Negroes enacted our, our segregation statutes. Are you suggesting that the and Negro... That's pretty, that's pr- I, I'm suggesting that the vast majority of the Negroes want their own schools, their own hospitals, their own churches, their own restaurants. What do you think? They still think it's... Uh, it's- Historically wrong-headed and inaccurate. Um, I think it, it also conflates a couple of different things. I think it's one thing to say people might prefer to to frequent certain restaurants or hang out with certain people socially, which is one thing. It's an entirely different thing to say that segregation wasn't fundamentally about power and resources. I think that's where the conflation goes. Um, it the so thinking again about the context of World War II. The issue with segregation and racism was that when black veterans came back, they couldn't get mortgages to live in certain neighborhoods. They couldn't get the kind of college tuition benefits that white veterans got from the GI Bill. They couldn't get job training benefits in the same way. Those are about resources and power. And I think that's where Eastland offering those, those quotes in the, the 60s, it's easy for him to point to, to restaurants and social aspects, um, much harder to talk about the, the vast racial wealth gap that opened up on um, – as a result of policies that, that mandated segregation. At the same time that James Eastland was in the Senate, there was a man named Richard Russell who was also in the Senate from Georgia. What do you think of the fact that there is a building, the, the, the oldest of the Senate office buildings, is still named the Richard Russell Building, and he was a white separatist? I think it's one of the many aspects of our country's history that we really have to reckon honestly with. Um, I think if you look back, you can find people in history who are on what we might call the right side of history, who, who truly believed in freedom and democracy and, and equality of, of all Americans. And then you can find numerous examples of people who were not, who fought actively, who dedicated their lives to try to maintain segregation, maintain racial hierarchies and racial inequality. We shouldn't have buildings uh, or monuments to those individuals, in, in my opinion, because I think they were not uh, they were not working towards the best vision of America. They were working towards a vision of America in which only a, a very small and select number of people uh, would benefit. Well, you teach history, and what is your take on why, when we went through this civil unrest after uh, the death of, of uh, George Floyd, that this nobody in the Senate suggested seriously to change the name? That's a great question. Um, you know, honestly, it might be that there's so many <laughs> different monuments and buildings that need to get looked at that they um, the tendency is often to focus on the much further back period, the history of slavery, uh, people who owned slaves or fought with the Confederacy. But we can look much more recently uh, at people who upheld a system of Jim Crow apartheid segregation in the United States, uh, particularly in, in political positions, and um, and it, it's really hard to make a case why we'd want to name uh, any 
federal buildings after someone who supported segregation in that way. One last clip from Senator Eastland. How is it that only 4%, 4% of the qualified Negroes are registered to vote in your own state of Mississippi? Approximately 20,000 Negroes out of a half a million of eligible age. Well, now, those statements are incorrect. We have over 20,000 Negroes who vote in the Democratic primary in the state of Mississippi. But we have many more than that, many thousands more than that, who are registered. I think they, you'll they, agree they, that they, it's Wait a, a minute, let me get percent. through now. Oh, no, wait a minute now. They do not vote because they have a long history of, be, of Republicanism. They are members of the Republican Party. And, of course, they cannot vote in the Democratic primary, which is the election in our state. The Republican Party doesn't even run candidates for as far as you're concerned, the state. as far as you're concerned, then, you would like to see every eligible Negro in Mississippi vote. I would like to see just what we have. Final reaction to Senator Eastland. I appreciate the clip about voting because it reminds me of a point that's important to make here is that Eastland wasn't elected democratically in any meaningful sense of the term. Uh, if you look at uh, 1944, 1945, fewer than 2% of black Mississippians were registered to vote at that time uh, because of decades of intentional uh, discrimination and in- intimidation. Um, when Medgar Evers, the famous civil rights activist, comes back from fighting in World War II, on his 21st birthday, he leads a group of black veterans who try to register to vote in Decatur, Mississippi. This is 1946. They're turned away by a white mob with guns. Uh, he dedicates his life from then on to fighting for, for civil rights. So when Eastland is even elected, the state of Mississippi is nearly 50% African-American, but fewer than 2% of, of those um, black citizens in Mississippi are even registered to vote. And so it's a it makes a mockery of the democratic system to even say that Eastland was representing Mississippi because he was only representing the white folks in Mississippi. <clears throat> the finer point he makes about the uh, black people being in the Republican Party, it goes back to that time period where uh, the South was solidly democratic. There's only really one one political party in the South, and they were explicitly segregationist. And so, um, it it highlights again the fact that um, black Southerners were largely blocked from having any meaningful voice uh, in electoral politics uh, for the large part of the 20th century in the U.S. You report in your book that during World War II, 433 medals of honor were issued to soldiers, none to blacks. What did your research show you on that and why? So during the war, there were a number of black soldiers and sailors who performed heroically. Um, But the reality was that they were just not going to be put forward for the Medal of Honor. Um, They got put forward for the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the the second highest award was in the Army. But because of the the racial dynamics of the time, they were just not going to be put forward for the Medal of Honor, or those who were put forward were were denied. Thankfully, in the 1990s, the Army uh, reviewed a number of cases of uh, soldiers who had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross to see if any were worthy of being promoted. They ended up um, upgrading seven of those Distinguished Service Crosses to Medals of Honor. And what I think we can learn from that is that there were numerous examples of heroism that happened during World War II, but that took nearly five decades to recognize. Um, to highlight just one, there's a man named Edward Allen Carter Jr., uh, who's among the most fascinating soldiers to fight in World War II. He um, was a black man, grew up with missionary parents uh, in India and in China. Um, he 
volunteered to fight with the, the Chinese army when he was only 15 years old against the Japanese in Shanghai. He goes to fight in the Spanish Civil War um, against the fascist forces in Spain. He speaks multiple languages, but when he uh, volunteers for the U.S. Army, they assign him to be a cook in a quartermaster unit. And so he gets a good example of how uh, black troops, even people who had combat training, who had language skills, the Army didn't know how to use their, their manpower, didn't know how to use their, their skills and qualification. Carter, uh, he's initially assigned as a cook. By 1945, uh, the start of 1945, the military needs more infantry troops. And so they finally issue a call for volunteers uh, to see if there are any um, black soldiers who are willing to, to join the infantry. Carter is one of 5,000 who volunteers to, to join infantry ranks. He actually has to give up his rank as a, a staff sergeant, go back down to a private in order to join infantry, but he's so eager to get frontline combat experience, he, he does that. He's assigned to um, an infantry unit that's linked with um, General Patton's 12th Armored Division, and as that group is pushing towards the Rhine, he leads a small detachment um, to try to subdue um, uh, a German stronghold in a, a warehouse. So he has to go across a field, he has to lead a group of soldiers across a field. He receives um, fire from um, uh, machine guns, from an a anti-tank gun, he eventually kills six of these Nazi troops, takes the other two hostage. Because he's able to speak German, he's interrogating the two um, uh, Germans that he's able to, to capture. And as he's leading them back to, to his army unit, he's able to understand and, and um, get out of them information regarding where other Nazi um, troops are located at, near, the, near the Rhine. He reports that back to his commander. The kind of stuff that Carter did in combat almost seems like a... A superhero movie. It's almost beyond belief, but it's it's the reality. It's what he what he what he did. He's ordered the Distinguished Service Cross, and he's one of those seven who's promoted to a Medal of Honor later on. Um, and I think he's just one example of the numerous acts of heroism um, by Black troops who were able to have combat experiences during the war. Um, and it's it's um, it's a good thing that the Army went back and reviewed those and was eventually able to promote seven to Medals of Honor in in the 1990s. Your background includes teaching at Scripps College out in California, Arizona State. You're now in Hanover, New Hampshire, not a bastion of mixed races up there. And how many blacks on a percentage basis are in the state of New Hampshire? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's less than 3% of the state of New Hampshire is is African-American. I think in in total, I think it's 89-90% white. Um, and then of the of the 10% who are people of color, it's only about 3% black. You went to Harvard. You got your Ph.D. at Brown, I believe. You're a history professor. All through that process, how much prejudice have you seen? And can you remember a time when you saw it? So I went to high school in the 1990s, in college in the 1990s, and so my professional life has been since the 2000s. Um, I think, obviously, there are many, many differences between the historical time period I write about in World War II and the present. And so nothing I've experienced in my lifetime in any way resembles the kind of explicit, extreme, violent forms of racism that black Americans encountered during World War II. I think what we have today is equivalent in some ways to what some of the black officers or professionals encountered during the context of World War II. And what I mean by that is for black folks who are able to counter some level of success and be able to get their foot in the door, they still find themselves in situations where they might be the only black person at the table. Um, and there are assumptions made about either their competence or um, how they gained access to these these spaces um, 
that are often based more on stereotypes than based on reality. And so I think that's, if I was going to speak to an experience and particularly navigating these Ivy League spaces as I have for a number of years now, I think that's the, the kind of polite forms of racism that you encounter today, um, I think are similar to what some of the black officers and uh, lawyers and other professionals encountered in the context of World War II. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Near the end of your book, you say, thank you to my mom, Diane Delmont, for teaching me the importance of history and for buying me that Tuskegee Airmen t-shirt when I was a teenager. Tell us about your mom. Why do you mention her? You don't mention your dad. Uh, and, and tell us about that situation and, and what impact did that Tuskegee Airmen t-shirt have on you? Yeah, th- thanks for asking about that. Um, so I had good relationships with both my mom, Diane Delmont, and my dad, Frank Bowman. Um, but I was raised by my mom. Um, my dad was around inconsistently. Um, and so uh, I think all credit goes to her for doing the, sort of the day-to-day work of, of raising a, a kid on her own. Um, the Tuskegee Airmen... Uh, t-shirt is actually kind of a, an in-joke with, with my mom a little bit. Um, she bought the t-shirt for me when I was 14. Um, and as a kind of knuckleheaded teenager, I didn't appreciate it at the time in the way that I should have because um, it wasn't cool in the way that a teenager is looking for a, a Nike shirt or an Adidas shirt to be cool. Um, but I think retrospectively, it, it was the first time I learned about the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and I think she, that's why she bought me the t-shirt. She wanted to um, help teach me about this aspect of history. Um, and I, I'm grateful to her for, for that. Um, and she gave me a hard time later because I didn't hold on to the T-shirt. I gave it away when <laughs> I was 18. I wish I would have kept it now. I didn't know I was going to be a historian. So <laughs> I wish I would have kept it now. Um, on my dad's side, I, I didn't reference it in the acknowledgments, but um, I don't have anyone in, in, on my dad's side who is in military service. But uh, for my dad and my uncles and grandma, um, definitely heard stories from them about black veterans who were were in their neighborhoods, first in Chicago and then in um, Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, who experienced some of the racism I describe in the book. And so from both those aspects of my family's history, um, getting a sense of both the importance of history, but also that they're always stories that are, they're often stories that are left untold and that don't make it into our our textbooks. I'm going to divert for a moment from the book Half American to another book that you wrote and I do it for a number of reasons. One, very personal. You will, I know you'll smile when you hear this, but 60 years ago I hosted a daily dance program on television. Uh, you wrote a book. You wrote a book all about American Bandstand and the relationship to race in Philadelphia. Um, if you're my age, you grew up watching American Bandstand at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in a small town in Indiana. Why did you get interested in that? And also tell us the technique that you use so that we can now go into a website and see the digitization of a lot of this material. Thank you for uh, asking about that. That was my first book on, on American Bandstand called The Nicest Kids in Town. It grew out of my dissertation. Um, I also, I can credit my mom in some ways for, for that project. She uh, grew up in uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota uh, as a um, 
10, 11, 12 year old watching American Bandstand on TV. Um, and so something I was aware of uh, from, from her stories about it. But as a historian, when I was in, in grad school, um, I became interested in the topic because I was fascinated by uh, trying to get a better understanding of how the civil rights movement developed in the North. And so I was trying to find a, a location that would give me a chance to talk about segregation and, and civil rights protests around schools, but also around media. Uh, and as I looked uh, more into it, Philadelphia really became um, a great place to talk about a number of these stories coming together. And so the story with American Bands and why I think it's interesting is that it was the first of these dance shows to become a national television program. There were local dance shows all over the country where you had teens dancing on, on television. But American Bandstand was the first one to be a national program. It broadcast from a studio in West Philadelphia that is a very racially mixed neighborhood. Uh, there are a number of Italian-Americans, Jewish-Americans, and black Americans by 1957 who were living there. But when you tune into American Bandstand, it was all white. Um, particularly a lot of white ethnic kids, Italian-American kids from the, from the neighborhood. And so part of what I was trying to understand is how why didn't American Bandstand resemble the neighborhood that surrounded the studio? Um, and what I revealed through interviews with the, the white kids who danced on the show, who were at that point in their 70s by the time I interviewed them, um, looking at archival documents, looking at newspapers, uh, particularly black newspapers like the Philadelphia Tribune, was that the producers had a series of kind of very underhanded tactics they would use to maintain segregation on the show. Um, one was forming a members committee where they would identify uh, a dozen or so kids who were sort of the key members and then allow them to invite other kids in un- under the understanding that they would only invite other white kids to be there. Or they would ask, require um, other guests to, to write in weeks or months in advance to request passes, and then they would screen the, the names and neighborhoods because they knew which neighborhood was a Irish neighborhood or an Italian neighborhood and which neighborhood was a black neighborhood. And so they would use, use that as a way to make sure black kids didn't get in the studio. In the converse, you had black kids in the neighborhood, 15, 16-year-olds, who protested outside of American Bandstand Studio. And so I was able to find evidence of that, that um, particularly right after the Little Rock School integration crisis in the fall of 1957, there were a group of black kids who wanted to protest something locally that was important to them. And what they chose was American Bandstand because they were upset that one of their favorite performers was going to be performing on the show, but they were blocked out, blocked out of the studio. And so the, the larger story I try to tell in that book is how – racial segregation functioned in a place like Philadelphia, that it was never as explicit as it was in the South. They didn't have black drinking fountains, white drinking fountains. They didn't ever say black kids aren't allowed in American bandstand. They just had policies that somehow seemed to always reproduce racial segregation. The connection I make in that book is that what was going on in the public schools at the time were actually was actually very similar. Um, Philadelphia's public schools become more racially segregated over the 1950s and 60s because school officials are doing something pretty similar to what the producers are doing. They're drawing and redrawing zoning lines so that black kids go to some schools and white kids go to other schools. They never explicitly say we're going to have a segregated school system, but as it turns out by the late 1950s, they they produce that outcome by um, these underhanded techniques and tactics. Um, So for me, that was an important kind of entry point to the profession because it gave me a chance to take something that people know well and try to show aspects of the history that are that are hidden. And then the last point you mentioned, um, a lot of my work has been focused on media history. And so for each of the projects I've, I've worked on, I've tried to create a companion website so that I can try to show some of my evidence to to readers. And so for American Bandstand, if, if um, listeners were to go to nicestkids.com, they'll be able to find a lot of the information from the book, but also a number of these video clips. You can actually go back and see what American Bandstand looked like in 1957, 58, um, and see some of the kind of production decisions they made that helped to um, 
produce the idea of it being a national show. You, you do suggest that Dick Clark embellished his role in bringing uh, black kids to American Bandstand. Explain that. Yeah, so one of the, the fascinating parts for me is actually when I started the book, I thought it was going to be a story about how American Bandstand was integrated and how that was actually being progressive relative to what was going on in the public schools in Philadelphia at the time and what was going on in terms of neighborhood segregation. And that was based on memories that Dick Clark authored offered up in his his own books on American Bandstand where he said he, he said you know I'm not a civil rights hero but I did take the important step of integrating American Bandstand after I took it over I took those at face value initially but then once I actually got into the research and was looking at these archival documents and newspapers and had a chance to interview people it turns out that wasn't true at all when you look at all of the photographs and all the video clips from American Bandstand while it's in Philadelphia before it moves to California. Um, there's only one picture of any black kids in the studio, and, and I'm able to, to point, uh, pinpoint that that was a case when black kids successfully protested to actually get themselves into the studio, and so it wasn't something that the producers actually wanted them in there. Kind of tracing the, the history of it, um, what I argue in the book is that Dick Clark didn't start to offer up that that faulty memory until Soul Train, the popular black dance show, became a direct competitor to American Bandstand. And then by that point, you're well into the civil rights era. Um, he sees his competition from a black dance program. At that point, that's the first time Dick Clark ever goes on record and says American Bandstand was integrated. And so I think it's a, a good example of how historical memory can be misleading sometimes, that even people who were there, like he was, can offer memories that are not necessarily intentionally lying, but they're they're misremembering what happened because new aspects come uh, come to the foreground. A quick timeline: I think I saw somewhere that it started in 1952, but the, the heavy years 57 to 64, and it was in Philadelphia. How long was it in Philadelphia, and where did it go then? And how long did it last until it, they shut her down? So it starts in Philadelphia as a local program in 1952, um, hosted initially by a guy named Bob Horn. Uh, Dick Clark takes it over in 1956. It goes national, still from Philadelphia in 1957, and it's national from Philadelphia from 57 till 60, early 64. Then it goes to California and becomes much more of a Hollywood production. So rather than having local kids dance on the show, you have aspiring dancers and, and Hollywood uh, actors and actresses. It's in California from 64 to 89. <clears throat> and that's its its kind of full run as a uh, a daily program, and then it kind of lives on in popular culture after that. And you've done five books, and I bring this up because if somebody's listening to this and they want to go to your websites and catch up on all that, and you did a book on making roots, you did a book on black quotidian, you did a book on busing, which you say why busing failed. Uh, and then the nicest kids in town, of course, the one we're talking about now. What's the best way to get to Matthew Delmont's work? Where can you find these websites and how do you find them? Yep. Yeah, um, so my personal website is mattdelmont.com. Um, and if you were to go there, you'd find a bunch of information on this new book on World War II. And then if you would just scroll down, you'll find links to all of the previous books. Um, and then from there, if you search any of the titles of those books, you'll find both the book itself, book the books themselves, which you can buy from Amazon or any other real, real um, retail store. Um, or you'll find the these companion websites, which I created for um, 
the Bandstand book, the Bussing book, the Roots book, and then Black Quotidian is interesting because it's only a digital book. This was a project with Stanford University Press where I um, was looking through historical black newspapers and created an um, entirely digital book project that um, I think will be interesting to a lot of people who might be interested in digging into these um, historical black newspapers. If you were here and we walked over to Union Station right now, which is only a block from where I'm sitting, and you walk toward the train gates, there's a statue there of a man named A. Philip Randolph. I always ask myself, I mean, I stop and look at it, and I always ask myself, I wonder how many people noticed this statue. It's been there for as long as I've been around. Who was he, and why does he play a role in the story that you tell in your book, Half American? A. Philip Randolph was among the most powerful black Americans during World War II. He was the head of the largest black union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And by virtue of that, he had political standing. He was the kind of person who could write letters to President Roosevelt, call President Roosevelt, and expect to get get an answer. In the lead-up to World War II, once President Roosevelt announces that America is going to be the arsenal of democracy, that's going to provide all of these tanks and trucks and supplies to, to the Allies, Randolph and others recognize that that means jobs. It means that these defense industries are going to be built up all over the country and that it's important that black Americans have a chance to, to access those jobs. He forms a, a group called the March on Washington Committee. And so in early 1941, before the United States has entered officially entered World War II, he threatens to lead a march of 100,000 black Americans on Washington, D.C. to protest two things, to protest discrimination in the defense industries, because at the outset, these defense industries are not hiring black workers hardly at all, and to protest segregation in the armed services, in the armed forces. Um, He receives a huge amount of media attention, particularly in the black black press, for uh, this this proposed march. And he's traveling all over the country, and he has um, essentially organizing captains all over the country by virtue of having uh, this role in the union. They're they're forming groups in in Dallas, and Oakland, and Atlanta, and New York. preparing to, to bring thousands and thousands of black Americans to lead this march on Washington. He's in direct conversation with President Roosevelt. Um, eventually, he gets a, a sit-down meeting with Roosevelt and some of his advisors in the summer of 1941. Initially, Roosevelt re- refuses to do anything. Um, Randolph's demanding that he take some um, specific steps to address discrimination in defense industries and to address segregation in the armed, armed forces. But initially, Roosevelt uh, refuses to do anything because he says, if I negotiate with you on this, I'm going to have to go negotiate with everyone else who has any any sort of claim. Eventually, through a series of, of back-and-forth uh, negotiations, Randolph is successful in getting President Roosevelt to sign an executive order, uh, Executive Order 8801, that um, at least on paper <clears throat> is meant to eliminate discrimination in these defense industries. Um, at the time, it's hailed within the, the black press as a second emancipation proclamation. It's uh, potentially a huge deal because it means that Black Americans are now going to have a chance to access these really important war jobs. Um, as it turns out, it doesn't uh, do everything it says it's going to do on paper. And so it's a, a watershed moment in terms of what Randolph is able to negotiate directly with the White House and get President Roosevelt to sign this executive order. It's also important because while he ends up calling off the March on Washington, that idea continues to percolate within black communities, and, and it forms the, the basis for what becomes the March on Washington in 1963. This idea of the March on Washington is first introduced in 1941. It doesn't actually come into fruition for two decades. But it remains a, um, uh, a source of political organizing and activism throughout the war to make sure that black uh, war workers actually have a chance to work in these defense industries. 
what happened when the soldiers came back from the war and we had this GI Bill? I mean, you, you have some really interesting stories in here about how people would maneuver around to prevent the black soldier from enjoying the, the fruits of the, of the war, which is the GI Bill. So GI Bill legislation was perhaps the most important piece of legislation in the 20th century. It's what enabled a whole generation of white veterans to be able to enter the middle class because it provided access to low-interest mortgages that were backed by the VA, uh, provided access to college tuition benefits, to job training benefits, to loans to open up uh, small businesses. By and large, black veterans weren't able to, to benefit from the GI Bill in the same way that white veterans were. And that was largely by design. Uh, going back to James O. Eastland, it was Southern segregation centers like him who held a number of the key positions on the Veterans Committee. And as they're discussing GI Bill, the GI Bill legislation, they make sure that it's going to be distributed at the state and local level rather than at the federal level. And everyone at the time understands what that means. When you do things at the state level, it means you're deferring to the racial policies of the states, which in the context of, of World War II meant um, the kind of Jim Crow policies that southern states had. And that's what, what happens when black veterans come back in the south. They try to access the benefits from their local offices. Almost all of the personnel who work at these local veterans offices are white, um, and they have the discretion to be able to, to either turn people away entirely or to give them the runaround. And so there were cases of black veterans trying to get college tuition benefits and being directed to vocational programs because they said there's no reason for you to go to a four-year college because there's no um, – there's no jobs that are suited to black Americans from, from those kind of programs. The mortgage benefits were largely uh, useless, at least initially, because the GI Bill didn't have any sort of provisions to address the discrimination that was in the banking and mortgage industry. And so not only in the South, but in places like New York and New Jersey, black veterans couldn't get these VA-backed mortgages because banks and lenders wouldn't lend to them. Uh, by 1950, 98% of those mortgages go to white veterans, only 2% to black veterans. There's a group at Brandeis who's calculated what the long-term impact of these uh, discriminatory tactics were. They, they show that taken over a lifetime, it's about a $100,000 difference for an average black order two veteran in terms of what they're able to get from these GI Bill benefits compared to a white veteran. And so when we look at the, the vast racial wealth gaps in our country, a lot of that can be traced back to the discrimination that was in the GI Bill. By the way, I know you're looking at Vietnam War for a next book, and I looked up the statistic this morning that around 30 percent of the combat soldier in Vietnam uh, was black. How did we go from what we had in World War II to have where the population is only 12 and a half, 13 percent? How did we go that far for the Vietnam War, and what impact do you think that had on this, this whole issue of race in this country? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I mean, a lot changes between World War II and, and Vietnam. I think, importantly, in 1948, President Truman signs an executive order that finally desegregates the military. Um, one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that segregation made no sense for the military. It was uh, costly, it was inefficient, it was redundant. The military could have just easily desegregated in 1938. It was only racial prejudice that prevented that from happening. But finally, in 1948, President Truman uh, issues an executive order to desegregate the military, and then by the end of the Korean War, that executive order has really kind of taken hold, that desegregation is piecemeal during the Korean War. By the end of the Korean War, segregation is really a reality. By the time you get to Vietnam, you have the military as one of the most integrated 
uh, institutions in all of American society. And for a lot of black Americans, they actually see the military as a really excellent career opportunity. And so the reason you have a much higher percentage of black combat troops is, is twofold. One, between the Korean War and the start of the Vietnam War, um, a lot of black Americans have joined the military because they see it as a, a positive um, career pathway. And so the percentages are higher for that. And then once the, the draft starts, you see um, more African-Americans being drafted and assigned to combat roles as opposed to more white Americans being uh, put in some of the, the technical roles. Um, and so it, it presents a very, very different uh, set of racial demographics and composition than what you saw during um, during World War II. In terms of the, the bigger picture and what it meant, um, it was complicated in a, in a couple of ways. Um, the military remained a site that was more racially integrated than almost any other aspect of American society, but it also remained a place where racism was still an everyday reality. Um, when you look at some of the oral histories from black veterans during Vietnam, um, they talk about seeing the Confederate flag displayed prominently on bases in the U.S., but also bases um, in, in Vietnam and elsewhere. Um, they talk about seeing white troops even wearing KKK regalia um, and how upsetting that was. And then racial epithets were just a part of day-to-day life. And so both those things were kind of part of the lived reality for black troops during Vietnam. That, that yes, it, it offered many more opportunities than what their fathers or grandfathers would have experienced in the military and offered many more opportunities than many civilian jobs would. But at the same time, there was much more um, daily racism and institutional racism than, um, than was acceptable. I'm going to go back. This is a combat chapter and uh, use this because it, when you see it, it's hard to believe that, that there were military colonels and generals were saying some of the things that they were back then. You talk about a Colonel William Momier, or I'm not sure that's the way you pronounce it, but it says here that Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen felt that Momier never wanted them attached to his unit. Colonel Momier, how do you pronounce it, by the way? I want to make sure I don't. Momier or Momier? Uh, Momier? Was Colonel Mamier was just plain prejudiced towards us, recalled Span Watson, a Howard University alum from rural Johnston, South Carolina. Mamier played petty tricks to embarrass and undermine the 99th. He scheduled briefings and then moved the time up one hour without notifying the black pilots so that they arrived when the meeting had ended. Where'd you find something like that? Um, in the recollections and oral histories from these Tuskegee Airmen pilots, um, I think that's was important for me to try to include in the book because I think among the black troops who fought in World War II, the, the Tuskegee Airmen are the most prominent and most well-known. But when you actually look back at what they had to, to endure during World War II, it was, it was a day-to-day, week-to-week struggle to, to prove themselves, first to get their foot in the door to have a chance to train as pilots, then to get deployed into combat, and then to prove they're actually doing a good job in combat. And often the people they had to prove wrong were their own commanders. They, they had some of these these commanders, such as Mamir, who were not excited about the idea of having black men in, in the Air Corps. And that's a, an important story to, to remember. Well, there's more quotes from him. It says, it is my opinion that they are not of fighting caliber of any squadron in the group, Mamir wrote. They have failed to display the aggressiveness and desire for combat that are necessary to a first-class fighting organization. Did you try to research and whether or not any part of that was true? 
So it didn't go as far into details as looking at the um, looking at sort of the, the plane by plane combat performance. Um, but I did look at a number of the sort of internal army documents, the, these after action reports that Monier, Mamir and, and others issued. And there's enough there to show that he wasn't making his judgments based only on performance. Um, that the kind of critiques he was making were not critiques that anyone would make of a white um, a white fight unit who were flying in combat for the first time. But there was there was more there, and the more there was was racism. That for him, he was starting from a place that he didn't believe that these black troop, black troops should be in the Air Corps, and that um, that prejudiced his view of how they performed in combat. You have General. Ben O. Davis Sr. and Ben O. Davis Jr. What's the story on Ben O. Davis Jr. and the Tuskegee Airmen? So Benjamin O. Davis Jr. Um, graduated from West Point in 1936. Uh, he was only the fourth black American to ever graduate from West Point in the first in the 20th century. But when he graduates, the Army has no idea what to do with him because he wants to be a pilot. But at that point in 1936, the Army Air Corps doesn't allow any black Americans to be pilots. And so he's one of the main characters in the, in the book because I try to trace his, his trajectory in the military and how frustrating it was for him to have graduated from West Point to be as distinguished as any young American could be, but still not have a chance to, to defend his country as, as a pilot. It's not until 1941 that the Army finally establishes the air base in Tuskegee, Alabama, where they're going to train this cohort of black pilots. And then the challenge for him is that they're there from 1941 till 1943, trained for almost two full years before they're given the opportunity to go into combat in the Mediterranean, whereas white pilots in the same time frame were training for six to eight weeks before they deployed. And so part of the story for Davis was he's about as distinguished as you could imagine. He wants to do everything he can to help defend his country. First, he has to just get his foot in the door to, to train, and then they are on these recurring training missions uh, over months and months and months in Alabama. And the conditions on the airbase in Alabama were, in many ways, horrendous. They, he and others described the the segregation, the racism they encountered, both on the base and, and off base when they went into other parts of Alabama. Um, then, as you're saying, um, once they actually get a chance to, to fly in, in the Mediterranean, their first commander, Mamir, um, is really negative on their performance in his after-action report. And so it's not until months later, once they have a chance to have a second, third opportunity at combat and start to shoot down Nazi planes, that he and the other uh, Tuskegee Airmen are finally able to, to prove themselves. And so I think his, his trajectory and what he en- encountered and endured is... Um, is a really good starting point to understand what a lot of black Americans encountered during the war. Davis was a deeply patriotic person, but he was offended that the military was segregated. He was offended that he didn't have the opportunity to um, initially to be a pilot. And then he was offended that his commanders um, didn't treat him in the same way they treated white pilots. And um, what, he, what he and the other airmen were able to, to accomplish was, was tremendously important. What was his final rank in the Air Force? I know he's a general. I can't remember if he's a four-star or not. You know, that's a great question. He received an additional star after retirement. So I, I, I was like, I'm sorry, I can't remember if he made it to four-star or not. A lot of names in your book. I'm just going to rattle them off. You can pick one of them to expound on. Thurgood Marshall, Ella Baker, James Thompson, Langston Hughes, James John Hope Franklin, 
James Baldwin, and I, I mentioned earlier A. Philip Randolph, Mary McLeod Bethune, Lester Granger, Walter White, Charles Hamilton Houston, Bayard Rustin. Pick one of those and tell us about them and how important were they to the whole World War II movement. Um, I'll pick Ella Baker. Um, if people are familiar with her name, they know her as a, a well-known grassroots activist who really uh, pioneered a set of organizing techniques that were um, brought to the foreground by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in the 1960s, and even um, later movements like Black Lives Matter in the 2010s. During World War II, however, Baker worked with the NAACP, and her job was to travel all over the country helping build membership and build branches. That's important because she helped to build the infrastructure for what emerged as a much larger civil rights movement in the 1940s and 50s. And so she's, she's traveling to big cities and small towns, helping or- local people organize to fight for issues that matter to them and their communities, uh, issues like job discrimination, voting rights, school segregation. And what was important about her approach to organizing is that she believed any person had the capacity to be a leader, that you didn't need to be a doctor or a lawyer or a professional class black person to be a leader, but you could be a sharecropper. You could be a, an everyday person and be a leader in your community. She trained people like Rosa Parks at these leadership workshops who went on to have really distinguished careers as civil rights organizers. And she helps to make the NAACP a much larger national organization by the end of World War II. So at the start of the war, NAACP is a fairly small organization that's really clustered in the Northeast. By the end of the war, they have branches all over the country and their membership has increased uh, tenfold. It's largely due to her. One of the, my favorite things that I found in my research was some papers that are in her, um, her collection at the Schomburg uh, Library in, in Harlem where she was working to organize membership even among active duty soldiers and sailors. And so there were units of of black troops stationed abroad in places like Normandy who were organizing, raising money, passing the helmet around, and then sending their their spare money back to the United States to help the NAACP fight for voting rights back here in the U.S. I think that's one of the clearest illustrations of the double victory campaign, that you had these black troops fighting fascism abroad and then sending money back home so people like Al Baker and people she's working with could fight racism at home. This isn't double victory, but you do mention, I mean, it's an illustration, but you do mention what happened when the German POWs in the mess hall compared how they were treated in our mess halls when they had them here in the United States versus how the black man or woman was treated in the mess halls. Explain that. One of the most frequent and frustrating stories that black veterans told after the war was how German POWs were treated better than black soldiers and black black veterans. What they described is that these German POWs were allowed to eat in parts of the mess halls, right? allowed to sit in parts of movie theaters, allowed to use recreation facilities, uh, and allowed to sit in parts of train cars and buses that were off limits to black soldiers. That the racial policies, the segregation policies of the time, continued to block black Americans from all these things, but allowed German POWs to, to, take, on, to take on these benefits of, of whiteness. It was so frustrating for black soldiers and for black veterans because just months before, these German soldiers have been trying to kill American soldiers, but now they see white American soldiers being chummy and friendly with German POWs in ways that they were never friendly towards black soldiers. It really made them question the sincerity of their fellow white soldiers in fighting this war, um, because they it became clear to them they weren't necessarily fighting for the same thing, that once the, the military conflict ended, they received these German POWs with a much warmer welcome than they ever received black Americans. And it, it 
steeled their resolve to fight for actual freedom and democracy here in the United States. What mark would you give FDR? He had among the most challenging presidencies that that any American president has ever had. Um, I would say I would rate him highly in terms of rate him highly in terms of the executive order that attempted to limit discrimination in the defense industries, that it didn't produce everything it could have potentially produced, um, but that at the time it was signed in 1941, uh, it was among among the most forward-looking pieces of legislation um, with regards to employment, and that it had it did open up the defense industries to more more black workers. I think, unfortunately, I would give lower marks in terms of um, addressing the the significant amount of racism in the United States during the war head-on. Um, thinking just about what was going on on the home front, there were numerous racial clashes, uh, race riots all across the country. In 1943, there were more than 240 race riots in the United States alone. Um, there were numerous examples of racial violence against black troops on army bases. Those are things that a president should speak to and should, should have addressed. Um, and they weren't a secret to him. They were things that civil rights activists um, continually brought to his, his attention. People wrote letters, constantly, constantly called him about it. I think the reason he didn't is that there was a much larger world war happening. He had other things on his, on his agenda. But I think even more pressingly, he was relying on votes from the southern wing of the Democratic Party that um, wanted no changes to the racial hierarchy or no changes to the racial status quo. And so I think on that, uh, Roosevelt could have done a lot more to address the, the very real realities of racism in the country during the war. In, in your relationship to the Internet as this book comes out and people read it, have you gotten any kickback, feedback, negative comments, racial comments about what your position has been in this book? It's funny. I would say 95% has been very positive, um, and that's across many different audiences. So I had a chance to talk to more um, liberal audiences, more conservative audiences, and by and large, people are supportive of the book's main arguments, that we need to recognize the vital role that black troops played during the war, uh, the fact that those black veterans came back and fought for civil rights, and that we need to honor that generation of black Americans and black veterans. I'd say 95% of people are, are very positive about that. The critiques I've gotten in is mostly on Twitter and other social media. Um, I'd say it comes in, in two ways. One, there's sort of a knee-jerk reaction some people have to any um, specific focus on black Americans or black troops. And so people will say, well, what about Native American soldiers or what about white soldiers? And It's a weird thing to say for a a work of history because any book you, you take is focused on a specific subject, right? And no, like that's why we have bookshelves and libraries and uh, we have, um, this book is meant to contribute a perspective to the much larger um, shelf of books on, on World War II. But I think it also comes from a place that's uh, that's suspicious of any um, any efforts to to put black Americans at the center of a, a national story like this. I think I think that that's what's frustrating about it. And then there are other people who have uh, want to quibble about details about the, um, the number of black Americans who served or number of black Americans who died in combat. Um, and those are usually mean-spirited. Um, and I, I consistently 
if I find frustration, I'm frustrated that people would do anything to to speak negatively about black veterans from World War II uh, in today's today's day and age. Is it? Did I gather you've been at Dartmouth since 2019? Yes. Why did you decide to go to Dartmouth? Uh, the honest answer is my wife got a job here, and they <laughs> they had a job in my field as well, and so so we moved together. Um, I think another answer is that that I mean Dartmouth obviously it's, it's an amazing amazing institution. Uh, it's a tremendous research institution, tremendous uh, undergraduate population. Um, it is, has the benefit of having a tremendous amount of resources, a great alumni network, and so I've I've loved being up here, uh, working at Dartmouth, teaching at Dartmouth, and, and living in, in the New Hampshire area. What does your wife do there? Uh, she's a professor in film and media studies. She works on the history of quantification. Of all the things you've done, what has gotten the most attention over the years? All your books and your websites and your teaching and all that. I think overall, this book has gotten the most the most attention. Um, and I think maybe the one that I was most pleasantly surprised about was in the lead up to the book last February. I did a. Um, um, a Twitter thread where each day during February I highlighted one black veteran from World War II. Uh, some well-known people like Doris Miller and then some less well-known people, people like W. Johnson Roundtree who's in the Women's Army Corps. There were, I think, more than 10,000 people who retweeted that thread. Um, and so I think for me, I like those kind of small touch points, trying to get more people thinking about this history in just everyday ways that I'll always be able to talk to my students directly, I'll always be able to do kind of larger public presentations and write books. But I think it's important for everyday Americans to to be thinking about all aspects of American history. I think ideally thinking about um, black history and how it helps us uh, better understand how our country got to where it is today. The name of this book from <clears throat> Matthew Delmont is called Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. And we thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. New episodes of the Afterwards podcast will be back in September. If you like this episode of Book Notes Plus, you can follow it wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow our C-SPAN Bookshelf podcast and get weekly episodes of all our podcasts that deal with nonfiction books. If you've been enjoying this podcast on Stitcher, please be aware that platform is ending operations at the end of August. But don't worry, you can still find this podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts on many other podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the C-SPAN Now app. 